You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to part three of episode 71 of the Library Pros Podcast. In this final installment from the 2019 NILA conference, we speak with Sally Stiglitz and Tim Spindler from the Long Island Library Resources Council and old friend of the podcast, Jill Hurst-Wall from Syracuse University and the podcast T is for Training. This was a great discussion about a whole bunch of different things that were happening both at the conference and things that we can talk about going further into the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this final installment of our NILA 2019 episode 71. Okay, we're back for, at the NILA Conference 2019. It's our annual um, conference week where we meet with other library professionals from all over New York State. And joining us is one of the awesome Sallys, Sally Stiglitz, who is at the, from the Long Island Library Resources Council, or, or as we call them, LIRIC. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> if Bob were here. <laughs> the ghost. Bob just couldn't make the conference. That's why. Yeah, ghost Bob. Ghost Bob, yeah. So uh, last night we had a, a little work reception for, for Long Island people. Yeah, we um, had over 120 librarians, trustees. So tell everybody what, what that is in connection with this conference. It's an opportunity for us all to gather, network, relax after a day, enjoy each other's company in a way that quite often we're just working together and we don't get to relax, uh, talk about the conference, talk about what's going on in our libraries. It was really nice, and uh, the restaurant did a great job. There was good food. Um, there was plenty of space to walk around and talk. I thought it was a good event. It, just as background for people who aren't from Long Island, um, there's this divide between Nassau and Suffolk counties. And one thing that I've always been talking about sometimes here on this podcast, and especially talking with you, because Lyric transcends both Nassau and Suffolk and transcends past public libraries into academic libraries and special libraries. We're bridging libraries, that's what we like to say. Love it. One thing that I am a proponent of, and we were just talking about this off mic, is how Nassau and Suffolk, we need to work more together, not necessarily from a Suffolk Cooperative Library System or a Nassau Library System that level, but on a level um, just library to library. So one thing that you know that I'm involved in is the TIFF group, the Technology Information Forum, and we do it twice a year, joint meeting with Nassau. And I was just speaking with one of our colleagues from Nassau County talking about maybe making it an every other month event where one month it's hosted in Nassau, one month it's hosted in Suffolk. Now the queue is already set for 2020, so my libraries are already booked and we already have it booked for the, the two joint meetings. But for 2021, it just makes sense that we have more interaction between each other. It makes so much sense because this arbitrary divide when we're all doing the same work for the same community and it's almost pointless to try to work separately and then get together and say, okay, here's what we're doing. What are you doing? Right. We are the same community. Absolutely. And, you know, it, no matter where you are, and we've talked about this tons of times on the podcast, whether I'm interviewing somebody in Australia, somebody in the UK, somebody in Chicago, somebody in Toronto, somebody in Saskatchewan, you know, wherever you are in library land, we're all doing the same stuff. Like, we had just interviewed somebody in the UK, and they were talking about the same thing. Gate counts are down. Starting to circulate different electronic items like laptops and hotspots and all the different things that we are doing here. It's a trend not just nationally but internationally. So why can't we... There's no secret sauce for in an individual library system, so why can't we all just share our resources? And it just makes sense. That kind of openness is very productive and also just practical. 
getting feedback from other people on what worked and maybe more significantly what didn't work can really help us um, move forward in a way that's uh, you know time efficient uh, resource efficient somebody else could have already done the bad pancake we don't have to do our own bad pancake right and let's learn from each other um, yeah. and in terms of and that kind of is a good transition to talking about what happens here at, at the NILA conference. So it, there's an exhibition center and there's a whole bunch of vendors and you can see that, but there's also a bunch of uh, programs that are just like other conferences. They're, they're driven by librarians who submit um, proposals for presentations and then I don't know how it's, who makes the decision, whether it's the executive council for NILA or whatever, but they choose the programs that are going to um, be featured here and have librarians from all over the state do their, you know, do their thing and, and talk about things, their successes, their failures. We had one um, presentation this morning that I went to from a good friend of mine, Nick Tanzi, who talked about when his library got hacked um, and, and what he did to, first of all, mitigate and then rebuild. Um, and it was great to see such a great turnout where people were spilling out into the hallways. Uh, but there's been a lot of a lot of different programs here that that were really actually very good um, content. You know, when we talk about the unity of Long Island being one place, I mean, to some extent there's a great divide between Long Island and the rest of New York, but we have a lot in common. We do, absolutely. Um, I mean, we don't share the same um, populations and resources as a rural library in some ways, except maybe some of the East End libraries do. But uh, we're community still, and uh, we all get together to advocate for library funding. Um, and our populations and needs are, are quite similar in some ways. You know, um, school librarians, uh, challenges to reading. So um, it's very important for us to share and to recognize our community. And this conference is really the only way we do that. When we go to the national conferences, I don't think it, there's any particular draw between downstate and upstate versus just talking to somebody from another state. Right, and, and things that are unique to New York State, like uh, funding, how we derive our funds, the different types of libraries that we are, how library systems function um, it, throughout the state. And Lilwick is one of the nine regional councils. Correct. So what I always find fascinating, and I always try to, I'm always trying to find upstate libraries to talk to, because I think they're the ones that have some kind of secret sauce, because they're able to do so much with not a lot of funding. It's amazing, actually. It really is. It's um, it's quite interesting to see how a library in a rural area with a maybe $100,000 budget can roll out robust programming and provide, you know, the internet access and, and digital resources for their patrons. And a staff of two sometimes. And a staff of two. Right. And I'm always in awe of what the upstate people are doing because they're doing a lot with a little. And it, it really is interesting how they, they jerry-rig things so they can still do what they're doing. So we just saw Jeremy walking by. Yes, Jeremy. The, the, He's the, a fearless leader. The fearless leader, the head honcho, Mr. Orange. <laughs> he looks like He's, he's orange for open access because he supports freedom of information. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and it's interesting to see the, the head of this entire organization Moving tables. You know, it's a hands-on thing, and I think in libraries we're always that way. <laughs> yes, exactly. I you know I'm, my director is as hands-on as anyone with setting and you, up. And you know what? It, I'm glad you, you said that because there is this perception that when somebody becomes 
it takes a leadership role, whether it's yeah. in at Lilric or, or public library, that they're in this ivory tower and you know you need dispensation to speak to them, and it's not it's not really true. I don't think we can even afford that kind of <laughs> right luxury because I mean if you're running something, it's not if you're a director or an assistant director running a program. What, are you going to bring minions with you? <laughs> right, yeah. I think the culture has changed, at least in our industry, yeah. where it's not as much an, a hierarchical, you know, top to bottom mm. flow, as much as maybe it's more of a 45 degree angle now. Yeah, I think it's healthy in a way. It gets rid of rankism when you think that somebody's not better. I'm, not, yeah. I'm too good to clean up, you know, the bagels. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always going to be a, a formal structure yeah. versus an informal structure. And it seems as though at least in terms of libraries from what I've seen, it's now kind of shifting where the informal structure and the formal structure within an organization are kind of becoming a gray area in the middle. Yes, it's becoming much less um, structured. But I think one thing that's great about that is it fosters collaboration. I love to see how the ideas of anybody in an organization can be valued and not like you're not in a position to advance an idea because you're just a, um, an assistant. Okay, you just took the words right out of your mouth. It, there's those words, I'm just a. Right. That nobody is just a. Everybody is an important part of the organization. That's my issue with the expression VIP. Who are the unimportant people? <laughs> Who, who's the NVIP? <laughs> who's the not VIP? Everybody's important. Yeah, everybody has a, a, a role to play in the formal structure. But then when you talk about the informal structure, there isn't a day, at least I can only speak for, for I work, there isn't a day that I'll speak to clerks, but I'll also speak to the director. The director talks to the part-time custodians. The part-time custodians will talk to the department heads. And it's not about, I need this done, I need that done. It's, how are the kids? How's the family? And, and also feedback on how things are going in the workplace. Because Absolutely. believe it or not, people in different positions are going to have different perspectives and observe different things. And it's extremely valuable to get that information. Mm -hmm. So if you're open to the idea that a custodian may have valuable information for you, um, somebody misbehaving or um, building um, maintenance is a key, you know. For oh, absolutely. Sure. It's essential. You know, you can't be open and you can't maintain your collections if that infrastructure falls apart. And I argue, you know, arguably, custodians are probably the most important people in the building. Good because, luck opening the library with that. Right. Or... The, the air conditioning's not working, the heat's not working. Yeah, that's a shutdown. You know, people don't recognize the custodian until there's some type of discomfort. Uh, and if the custodian's doing their job correctly, which they are 99% of the time, everybody's comfortable so he can, you know, people say, oh, custodians, they don't really do much. No, they are. They're doing a ton of different things. They're maintaining, they are making sure there isn't a, a breakdown in building facilities. It's really essential. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's not... It's not realistic to, uh, just because somebody's work seems um, seamless, to say that they're invisible. So, yeah, it depends. It doesn't really, yes, there are titles, and everybody has a title, and there is that hierarchy. But it, people who are department heads and things still need to talk to everybody else, and they need to talk to the department heads so everybody knows what's going on. And there's good communication. There's an ability to see whether or not train, further training is needed. Um, there's also a sense of, being able to talk to people who are in the trenches to figure out, are we doing things right or do we need to adjust things? Yeah, team-based approach. Absolutely. You have to be that way because this isn't corporate America. 
Maybe even corporate America should be like that. Maybe it is. You would think, right? Sometimes I think that libraries have evolved as far as a workplace environment where it's it's more hum, humane, it's more humanitarian right. than, than corporate America is. I don't think that we see our value as being better than somebody else. Right, and that's what we do. You know, we, we offer a judgment-free environment for anybody to come in and use. Mm-hmm. So I think that also translates to how we manage our employees, how we manage the way we do things. Yeah, I think it has to. Otherwise, it would be a real dichotomy of... Uh, Everyone is welcome. Everybody's valued, except for you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it makes sense for us to take those uh, contemporary practices and uh, integrate them into the workplace. And what's really cool, uh, switching gears back to the conference for a moment, mm. uh, I think it's it's interesting where coworkers can come to a conference like this and kind of let their hair down a little bit and kind of pull back that the, the green curtain, as it were, and and be human with each other and meet people from other places. It's a nice way to do that on a casual level where you can just have a conversation over a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. um, talk to somebody from a different library or a different um, type of work. I really love meeting up with people at conferences. That's uh, The human part of it is just as important, maybe more important to me than networking. And you find out about somebody else's work. Yes. You know, we were talking about this before. Um, I was talking with a, a few other people that sometimes you know you go to a um, a session and it may not be the best session. And if you pull away a nugget or a kernel, then then it's worth it. But I think the the bigger learning experience is after that session when you talk to other people in the session and you start networking there and talking about it and continuing the conversation about what the topic of that particular presentation was. I think if you're 100% on the markets continuing the conversation because if we just go there just to write down some notes, we're not doing anything of value with that information. Right, and how do you really, like when you go back to your library, you know, how do you go back and generate some type of report about what you've learned mm-hmm. unless you had that further interaction? You know, to some extent... Um, when I visit a library on behalf of Lyric, like when I came by Sultram, I'll do something very similar. I will send out um, a brief email on different ideas that I gather from people, uh, things I learned visiting a library, because you know, when one of us goes, we can't all go to every library, and we'd probably annoy you if we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, that information isn't just for me, it's for the entire organization. Right, right. And- even just within Suffolk County, when you visit other libraries, you get ideas. Like we have libraries come all the time to see the different makerspace things that we're doing. Yeah, well, and you're a leader in that. For sure. Well, I don't know about that, but what I do know is that I love when a library comes, they see what we do, and they kind of take the flavor of that and make it work for their building. Right. So it may be the same printer, it may be the same piece of equipment, but yet it's done in the spin of that library. So it's they've taken vanilla and added something to it to make it the vanilla for that, or the flavor for that particular building in that population. But that helps you too, because you get to see different ways that things that you're doing can be put to use. And I can't tell you how many times libraries have come, then they've gone and come to see our stuff, and then gone off and done their thing, and then I, I would go to see them and get ideas from them. So it's it's more than just come see our stuff and then that's it. There's the, oh, can you come and see our stuff? We'd like to show you. And then I learned something. Information is flowing in both directions. Exactly. It, and there's no, you know, the word expert is thrown around 
way too much these days. And, and Sally, you and I both came from the legal world where, you know, if you pay somebody enough money, they can testify as being an expert in whatever you want them to be an expert in. And, you know, the word expert is really, it's, it's not objective anymore. Maybe we should use the term learned instead. Yes. Oh, I see it. My uh, director. Oh, Tim he's Tim Spindler walking over to the table. Tim, would you like to sit in on join our us? conversation? You know, information sharing is part of the value of these conferences. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think of examples now. I just, uh, I just got out of the meet. I just got out of the session with the state librarian. So I was just trying to. How did that go? It went well. I mean, there were a lot of good questions. Um, you know, concerns about the census. Mm-hmm. Concerns, um, also though about, of course, funding and what's going on with the governor's budget. And it's always a struggle. Yeah, yeah. those are big issues. Um, and you know, I, I think the biggest thing with the state librarian is Lauren's very clear that she actually has limited amount of power. She can't lobby. She can't, you know, advocate in more traditional ways. Um, I mean, the main strength is she can inform, and she has a channel for communication. Um, so that's the biggest thing. We were regarding about, sharing yeah. <laughs> information, that's a little different. But, uh, we were actually were talking a little bit about the budget issues that Nyla allows us to um, talk about the things we have in common mm. with the people from other parts of New York State, such as how we all advocate for the budget together, um, our common census concerns. Okay. So, I mean, this is a unique conference in that way because there's a lot of divide between uh, Long Island and the rest of the state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, geographically, it's sort of an appendage to the state. It really is. Yeah, it's a great way to describe it. Yeah. We just don't fit. You know? um, yeah. And, I mean, and, and we're isolated, too, because yeah. yes. just to get off the island requires a bridge or two. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of driving after that. Yeah. Just so close to Connecticut. Well, I think just population wise, and the one thing I've been struck by since I've been on now about a year and a half on island. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Island life. <laughs> yeah, is um, there's some unique population issues. New York City, of course, the boroughs have theirs, but um, Long Island is mostly urban. Um, so there's that, and the rest of the state is not that urban. Correct, yeah. So it, there's, there's urban-rural issues that um, where it's heavily urban, and, and you've got actually a county like uh, Nassau County that's in transition, I think, from going from suburban to actually urban. I know where I live in Mineola, there's just some very large apartment buildings that have gone up all around the train station. Right. So it's looking much more like you're living in a city. It's closer to Queens in some ways. Than, than, you, than it is even a suburban area. And even something like the hub in Rockhockama now. Oh yeah, I've heard about that, I haven't seen it. Where you're having six and seven story tall condo complexes that are built adjacent to the Rockhockama train station so that's turning something that's more of a suburban neighborhood into a little more of an urban environment yeah. because of you, you, now you're going, you know, you're going vertical yeah. with, with living yeah. space. And that's what these same apartments, they're between five and seven, eight stories. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how the library services will change to reflect the change in the population. And that's, that's always the trick, right? Yeah. So when you, when you have a population that's evolving and changing, how do you, first of all, recognize that and then read it and then adapt to it. And is that something, obviously these changes don't happen overnight. It's a, it's a, it takes some time. And the library 
has to evolve over that same period of time. But I think the bigger trick is recognizing that change. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's happening some. The director in Mineola, he actually, in my apartment building, he, he's actually held office hours, not office hours, but he's been in the building actually kind setting up average. the... Yeah, setting up checkouts, and he's tried. He told me he was trying to reach out to the other direct, uh, the other apartment buildings. Ours is the only one that responded apparently hmm. positively. The others just ignored. <laughs> but well, no, I wish it was because of me, but it wasn't. But we also have. There's I'm in there, and the director of the Garden City Public Library is in the same building. Oh, okay, so. <laughs> that's pretty funny actually. Building. So, Chris, thank you. I'm going to have to step away because I have another commitment. Sally Stiglitz, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for jumping on with us. Thank you so much. And we'll continue with Tim. And Jill Hurst-Wall is is, going to be joining us shortly, too. Beautiful. From Syracuse University. So thanks for coming, Sally. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having us. Okay, so... I feel like we haven't had a a chance to actually sit and talk. So I'm I'm glad you came on so we can sit and talk. Sure. Tim Spindler from the Long Island Library Resources Council. Yes. Um, one of the things Sally just mentioned, though, was the High School and Beyond program, which we're doing. I, Chris, did you sit on any of the programs? I can't remember if you sit in any of them, sat on any of the meetings. I did not see that one, no. Okay. I'm trying to, because we've had some, somebody from Sachem, I think, <laughs> oh, attend. Maybe it was uh, Laura? Laura Akara? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to Probably remember. Laura. But anyways, the, this program is something we're just sort of kicking off. We did a bunch of roundtables in the spring mm-hmm. about that. Um, the idea is um, I've got feedback from, in particular, from college and from some high school libraries and to some extent public libraries, where they're dealing with students in high school who are graduating, um, looking for information about colleges, and the high school students aren't sure what to do to prepare, I mean, the high school librarians aren't sure what to do to prepare the, the students for college. And interesting, the college librarians are wondering what's going on in the high school, what's, what they're getting prepared for. Right. Um, at the same time, I've talked to a few directors, um, including Jen Fowler from Sayville, mm-hmm. who um, is wondering about, they're dealing with high school students coming in, using their library, looking for college materials. Also, they're dealing with distance ed students who might be taking a class like at Syracuse online and then using the library for the resources. Um, and so what we started to do is try and create a conversation right now um, for that, to, to get the high school, college, and public librarians to talk about things. One of the things we're looking at doing now is in the spring, holding two unconferences based on something that Sinasa Public Library already did with their ed camp, in which they provided just an opportunity for different librarians from the different types to talk. And so we're looking at doing something probably late March in an unconference format in Suffolk and Nassau County um, that would bring together academic, public, and school librarians and anybody else really who would want to participate. That's a great idea. So, so because, and, and Jill Hurst-Wall has just joined us from Syracuse University, and maybe you can even jump into this. I know you're not in the library at, at Syracuse, but you are an instructor, right? Yeah, right. Okay, so we were talking about communication between high school libraries and college libraries and how they can communicate and share materials and share resources on getting the information to the high school students who are applying to college. Oh, okay. So this actually, Tim is talking about um, 
uh, yeah, sponsoring we, an unconference. Yeah, we have a program called we're calling High School and Beyond, and I know some of the other councils have similar programs with different names. But the the idea is more than just applying for college, but um, even teaching high school students more about information literacy, um, preparing them for what they what would be expected in college. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'm learning a lot about is AP programs and things. Um, some of these students are already doing that. Um, I was at an event hosted by Kathy Rizor uh, from Smithtown, who brought to, brought together some of the teachers and two even high school students who in AP programs and found out they were doing work at Stony Brook already and using had certain expectations about bibliographies and things that at an academic level that they were doing in an AP class. Right. So they had to learn about that. But, um, it's always interesting because on an anecdotal basis too the you know the high college students get the student in and they say didn't this person learn about the EBSCO database before or something yes exactly and then we talk about the high school talk to a high school librarian and they say the same thing it's like didn't they learn this in middle school right exactly and there's, there's, there's these there's assumptions yeah. yeah and a lot of times they did there was one at one of the events one of our college librarians who actually also worked at the high school, taught a student at the high school, got them at the college level, knew she had taught that student the, the resources, and the student said they didn't remember it, <laughs> being taught that when they got to the college level. But I wonder if some of that is that it looks different, like the page, yeah. the branding or something looks different, and students just don't, students and adults just don't recognize it as being the same thing. I think there's some of that. I think there's also issue if you don't use it, you lose it. Yes. And right. so if it's not tied to an assignment or something like that, sometimes they're, they're not retaining it also. Right. And that makes some sense, too, because if it's packaged differently, like let's say in, in high school, it's, it's Google, Google for Education, but in college, it's Blackboard. Yeah. And now you have yeah. to learn something through the Blackboard portal versus doing something in G Suite or, you know, in, in Google Drive or, or whatever, you know, the, the high school level of that is. Yeah. You know, that can be fairly intimidating. Now, when I worked at Dowling College, when Dowling College was still around, you know, it was, everything was on Blackboard. And when I went to college, there wasn't Blackboard. Right. So it was a learning curve for me as somebody who provides information to say, what is Blackboard? I had to learn another whole thing. And, and honestly, it was quite intimidating for somebody who pr- traditionally worked in a public library to now figure out Blackboard and all the components of it and the lib guides attached to it and, and the turn, turn it in uh, uh, thing for the papers and, and all that other stuff. So as an adult, it was fairly intimidating for me. I can't imagine what it's like as a college freshman. And I actually am reliving that now because my daughter is a freshman at University of Rhode Island. So I'm kind of walking her through some of this stuff and she's pretty good she's not intimidated by much when it comes to this but you can see that the transition can be difficult for kids who may not be as technologically adept like everybody plays PlayStation but not everybody understands EBSCO and how to search a database yeah so one of the things that I don't even remember where I heard this was uh, about mentoring it was actually mentoring new LIS students but you could apply it to any level and connecting them with someone who's a little bit further along in the program, who can help them with that technology aspect, aspects, or maybe you know, how to use the different databases, because I know that we go through this every fall. The students come, they don't know how to do X, and it may be a huge job for the librarian to 
bring that person up to speed. And so can they uh, use existing students as part of that pool to help them learn whatever it is that they need to learn? Is that, are you talking about like peer, peer training? Kind it of? could be peer training, yeah. yeah. It's almost like a, like a mentoring program or something right. like that. Yeah, that makes some sense. And I know um, I can only speak for what I'm seeing with my daughter at the University of Rhode Island. They do have mentors, and they do have um, they they have RAs, but they also have a, um, a second person in the dorm as an advisor. So it's more than just I'm, I'm not getting along for my roommate, or you know I don't like the food, or I'm I'm having difficulty in being homesick. It's how to navigate the administration of all this stuff. So they have an intro to URI class, but on top of that, they have they call them Rams because Ram is the you know their their mascot. And so it's resident advisor mentor. So they're mentors for the kids. So they could say, oh, you don't know how to register for classes? This is how you do it. Oh, this is how we use, I don't know if they use Blackboard, but I'm using an example. This is how you use Blackboard. This is how you use the My URI website. This is how you check your URI email. And so it's all that, it's kind of like that concept where you have a jar and you put marbles in and it's full, but it's not full. And now you put sand in, now you think it's full and it's not full. And then you put water in. So they kind of fill in with the sand and the water where the, the, the regular curriculum and education are the marbles. And I'm not sure that all schools are doing that. Yeah. One of the things I've, uh, another school, I don't remember where, does is that they have milestones outside of the classroom so that students can, uh, you're in class and you're learning these things in class, but there's certain things you have to learn outside of class in order to be a good student. And so here's those milestones outside of class that you're expected to attain. And I think there's a, maybe there's a place for that in academic libraries to say, you know, with the institution, here's your milestones, and somehow we're going to connect this so that uh, this is not for credit, but you have to do it. It becomes a, a milestone on your transcript or something. That's mm-hmm. really it's an interesting concept because you're, you're taking the library and being turning it from something that's more of a passive thing that's there for use into something that's more of a um, it, it's something that's actually actively right. having to be done. It's almost like when you're in library school and you have to take the reference class and you actually have to get that list of reference questions and go and affirmatively go in and do the research to do it. It's, it's kind of like that but in reverse. And I, I'm always curious when we're talking about transition from high school to college. Now I remember back in the day when I was in high school that the, the high school library had cataloged hundreds of college brochures from different colleges. First, it would obviously regionally there would be more northeast because we're here in the northeast, and then it would be there'd be some from the southeast, and then as you got further west, it would kind of thin out, and then it would get heavy again once you hit the west coast. Um, I don't know that that really exists in a high school library anymore, and that's something as simple as just going into, into the college, what is that, the Princeton book about the top 100 colleges or whatever, and just you know, writing them a letter saying, can you send me five brochures? I'm sure that the admissions department would love that because it's like free advertising. For well, them. the only thing I keep thinking about, though, is so much of that is online now, too. That That's true. Would, I don't know how much is done in via brochures or not. And yeah. some of the things that used to be in print, so, yes, brochures and things, but I'm also thinking uh, when I applied to graduate school, I think, getting the catalog of courses in the mail. And there is no print catalog anymore. It's true. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. But in terms of even creating a libguide for colleges and maybe breaking it down by region or by state, something like that, um, yeah, that's going to take a lot of work. But just think about 
yes, that initial jump off point is going to be very hard, and that you may have to assign librarians to do that. Or maybe creating um, uh, a step-by-step -step guide on when you go to that college's website, search for these things. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, we don't know where it is, but if you search on these words, you should be able to find this, 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 and this. And these are all things that are really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, it's going to be anywhere on the site because every college is different depending yeah. on. Right, yeah, there's no cookie cutter. It's not yeah. like, yeah, it's not like even in the SUNY system, every website is different. And then, oh God, we could sit in and talk about the breakdown, you know, by major, by extracurricular activities, sororities, fraternities. You could really go crazy, but you'd have to think. You have to be smart about creating whatever libguide that's going to be and figure out what the most important components are. And not that one thing that would be important to one student wouldn't be important to another, but you have to try to, like anything you do in library land, you have to think about who you're serving and what they're going to want to see or what they're, going to, what they're looking for in that libguide for that particular school. I mean, I, I, I'm still also struck by academically, though, how do you prepare a student in high school for... The research expectations and, and that is a struggle right it is I mean and if you're you know I was lucky because my daughter was an AP kid I was definitely not even close to being an AP kid so when I went to college yes they, they had the research class and blah 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 but nothing can really if you're not that AP kid you're not going to get in high school that prep I mean it may be different now like I'm talking 30 something years ago but I don't know that there's that same level of prep for a kid who's not a, an accelerated kid with the expectations of what papers are going to look like and smell like and taste like and what, what citations are going to look like and, and all that other stuff. Yeah. So I just wonder how that can be helped with libraries, you know, in, at, at the high school level. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where getting the conversation sometimes because that was the question I got from some of the high school librarians is, what it, they want to prepare the students, but they're not always sure. So getting some of the academic librarians in there and what, what's to be expected. Um, and of course, though, it, you can't do a one-size-fit-all because what on Long Island, for instance, what Stony Brook would expect might be different than Malloy, different from Adelphi, or, and I don't know, you know, if somebody goes to Syracuse, what's the expectation? The thing I'm also unclear on, and I don't know, I know Syracuse, for instance, has online stuff for various graduate programs. How much undergraduate is done online now? That's really growing in different, in different areas uh, and for different reasons. So I don't teach undergrad, but I know that there's some activities going on across campus to do some online components. If you think about students who go abroad or who are off on an internship who want to continue to do classes, and so that's one of the things that they're looking at is how they can uh, provide some online education for those students and for others. Going back to preparing students, I see these groups of students and parents walking around campus all types, all times of the year, hopefully in good weather, sometimes in snow, with um, their orange bags. So that's how I can spot them. It's like they all have the same bag from admissions. Oh. And they're walking <laughs> in these groups being led around on a campus tour. With the one person walking backwards, right? Yeah, the one yeah, person, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I don't know if they go into the library. Yeah. I suspect a lot of it is pointing at buildings, uh, maybe going through some of the academic buildings, uh, or hooking students up with an academic, a specific college uh, 
school t tour, um, but maybe the thing for school librarians to do would be to take students to their local college library. And because, you know, even a community college library is going to be larger, I would think, than a high school library. And so what is, you know, what's the layout? What kind of things do you need to be looking for? What are the resources? Uh, maybe if you can take the, the students to a large academic library um, and like, okay, so what are the resources? You know, think about the resources that you use in your high school. How do you find those resources here? You know, it's a lot bigger, so where are they? And then if it's a multi-library system on that campus, you know, just getting students to think about what that means in terms of getting work done. Yeah. You know, you think in terms, too, of when you're evaluating college, one of the, now this is back when I was looking at colleges, and, and for me, with helping my daughter try to find what, what the right fit was for her, part of it was evaluating the library. And if you had a strong library with a strong collection, that was a stronger candidate to go to school, you know, to go to that school because they had the resources on campus versus another school with a smaller library that maybe didn't have all the resources. And now today, the playing field's kind of leveled, so, and it's more along the lines of how many subscriptions to databases and, and electronic resources you have. So, you know, I, I've, I've had conversations with people in the past where, you know, the debate is whether or not um, the size or the, the, um, the depth and breadth of the, the collection in a college library is as important as it used to be. Um, and now, as libraries are evolving and changing, whether or not having that archive in the basement is that really as necessary as we get, we move further and further into digitization, where those spaces can now be used and reallocated like they are in the public libraries for more collaborative spaces, quiet study, and even maker spaces to a certain degree. Um, like, again, I'm gonna use the example from the University of Rhode Island. Um, my daughter brought me into the basement because she wanted to show me where their, their IT people were because they had a piranha in, in one of the tanks. And she thought that was cool. And me being a, a law nerd, I'm walking past all these archives and they had, which I found ironic to be in Rhode Island, and they had all the New York State reporters, the original bound volumes going back, I think the earliest one I found was like 1838. So here I am drooling over this, and my daughter just wants to show me the piranha in the tent. <laughs> but, and I'm saying to myself, this is amazing, I'm taking it out, and the pages are, you know, they have the smell and the taste of, wow, this is you great. You lick you, them, you lick the pages. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm not going to cop to that, but, but, and you can see it's original because it has the original ink signature from the, the New York State court reporter of the day. And I'm thinking to myself, this is amazing. And then the second thing that popped into my head because of what I do, when was the last time this was touched not in a shifting environment? When did somebody actually pull this off the shelf and use this? And that kind of broke my heart a little bit. Because yes, they have these amazing resources and there's stuff everywhere. We, we were down in that archive for probably an hour just finding all these really cool things. But there was a layer of dust on them. Were they really being used and utilized? Now obviously these case reports and things can be accessed online with databases. So it begs the question, as much as this is cool and great and amazing, is there, is there a place for these materials anymore if they're online and digital? Well, and I know, I actually know a lot of the librarians at URI because I used to work in Rhode Island. Oh, really? <laughs> well, you're but, a New England guy, so yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, no, and that, I mean, that brings up an interesting question because um, I know the, the uh, woman, who, the librarian there who does all the ordering for journals and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, a number of years ago, I was talking to her, and she was talking about really having to slash a lot of her print budget 
just like a lot of universities and go to the databases. But the problem, too, gets to the point is their budget gets slashed and they have to cut the databases, too. Right. Then you're out. So now it's a double whammy almost. Yeah. Yeah. Because throwing out the books doesn't necessarily save you money as much, you know, as much as cutting a database. So going back to your library tour and thinking about our library on campus, libraries on campus, the and things that students have said recently about the libraries on campus. If I were to tour a college library now, I would want to look at what the study space is, what the group study space is, what the quiet space is, what the amenities are in that library. So computers, tech support, cafe. Um, You're hitting all the bases, yeah. Yeah. Uh, collaborative spaces, collaborative whiteboards. Spaces, and then uh, are there... Are there things housed in the library because it's a central spot? So right now in our library, because of our student center being totally renovated, there are things that used to be in the student center that are now temporarily in the library. So the LBGTQ center is in the library. There are other things on one floor of the library. So, you know, are there is academic support? Is there research support or whatever that might be in the library? Are there still books in the library? So, and then, you know, you're right. Are, th- are there books in the library and are they being used? Like, when you look at them, so it's a, an active collection. Is there special collections someplace? Maybe not in that library, but someplace else. But those are the things I kind of look for. And I know the students really look for that kind of research space, um, group space, quiet space. They also want to know that they're safe. So what's the security protocol for the library? How many mm-hmm. hours is it open? Can you get in on your badge after hours? You know, when, when do you get kicked out if you are kicked out? So those types of things are what I've recently heard from, from my students. And also talking about support, like going back to the piranha in the, in the fish tank, there's, an I, there's actually an IT um, department down there where you could bring your, your computer and say it's not working because of XYZ and they will assist you in, in either getting it repaired or figuring out what's wrong and finding the solution, getting that download patch or whatever it is. And that is something that, you know, is just another service that's provided by the university through the library. Now, thinking, like you were saying, the library is something that's like a centrally located thing. It's kind of like the, the center of knowledge, the heart of knowledge in the school. You know, it just makes sense to have an IT infrastructure, an, I, an IT help desk right. there. Right. And some uh, academic libraries loan out technology. So can you um, borrow a laptop? Can you borrow a charger for your phone? Those types of things are uh, are also being done in academic libraries. And one thing that is funny too, my daughter says it all the time, when we went, when we were planning the move, I said, well, do you need a printer? She's like, no, just go to the library and print it there. Because believe it or not, they're still turning in papers. They're not just doing the the blackboard thing. So I know it's I haven't been there in a long time, so I, I, it, for me, I'm kind of an old man when it comes to how they're actually getting this stuff into to professors. And um, it's just nice to know that she can go there, throw it up in her Google Drive, go onto one of the the computers in the computer lab, and and just print it out. You know. So again, as much as that's a comfort for patrons in the public sector, it's also a comfort to students that know that maybe if they did have their own printer and they're out of ink, the printer didn't work, if they spilled coffee into their printer, it's not, you know, whatever. They, they have that backup in the library's support. And, and libraries always do support, so. Yeah. And is there a large format printer? 
in the library because for some of their assignments, they might need to print something that's a poster or something that's a larger format. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget, too, there's also still a huge need for quiet space. Now, at most college or university libraries, the higher you go, if it's a multi-floor building, the quieter it gets. That's something that we saw. We must have looked at 15 schools, and, and that was the same rule throughout. I found fascinating in the beginning, but then it made sense logically after that, because the higher up you go, the further away you are from the front door. Yeah. So you won't deal with the, the noise that we're having right now. Well, yeah, and I've seen that in some of our academics where they've designated quiet space, where they have a place that they allow to get noisy meant for group. Um, It's interesting about group space because I think some libraries struggle with that because if the university takes over some of their space in the library, they lose their group space frequently. And then it's really difficult to get that back. That's true. Once once something is reallocated, it doesn't come back. We were dealing with that. I worked at Roger Williams University and we had that where they moved the Department of Education within the library. It was supposed to be temporary. It was temporary for like 10 years. (laughs) And they took all the group space rooms that was in the library for office space. Uh, I think I talked to the director of the library there about a year ago at ALA, and I think she said that they got some of it back. I've just seen that. There's other libraries I visited, I think, I want to say a couple on Long Island, where they've had that problem, where they've lost group space, the university took it over. Mm -hmm. But there's a high demand for it. And that also shows you the value of just the real estate of the library, you know, in a university setting. Because, again, it is that center of knowledge. And think about if the English department moved into the library, there's a reason why they moved into the library. And it's not necessarily because they had no place else to put them. But as much as it it could be because that's where the information is and it's just easier for them to get to that information. Well, I'm going to get going here. Okay, Tim, thanks so much for stopping by. Nice to meet you. Tim, nice to meet you. So first of all, T is for training, continues on. Uh, We've switched our time of week for recording uh, because of Maurice's schedule. And so now we record Thursday nights at 9 o'clock. So we uh, record now every other week on Thursday night at 9 o'clock. And we've been doing uh, shorter recordings, shorter 30, 40 minutes, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly because uh, the talk shoot platform still continues not to be kind to us Uh, and we keep saying we're technology people you know we can figure this out surely you know we should know how to deal with this change platform after a year Uh, but it continues to do little hiccups but so yeah it's going Marisa's doing good Uh, Paul so uh, I should back up T is for training it's T the letter T is for training is a uh, twice monthly podcast focused on training in libraries, but training broadly. So we talk about um, technology, we talk about uh, pedagogy, we talk about um, other things that uh, are related to training, are tangentially related to training. We um, often will do updates after a conference and we'll talk about what we all learned at a particular conference. We've been doing this for over 10 years. Uh, and so a bunch of us who were uh, didn't know each other well 10 years ago are like fast friends, although we don't see each other physically a lot. We see each other online, so it's really kind of fun. So uh, Paul Signorelli is out in California and uh, near where there had been some wildfire, at least the smoke 
coming through the Bay Area, so he's doing fine. And Maurice is doing well over in, in Maryland? Maurice is doing well in Maryland, yeah. That's great. I, I feel like I've, I've fallen off a little bit with you guys because it, it was the time. Yeah. And then things changed with me at work and yeah. stuff. So. so That's okay. But no. we'll catch up again. Life yeah. changes. And you got the plug-in. This is great. I got the plug-in. <laughs> T is for training. T is for training.wordpress.com. On the Twitter engine, we're at T is for training. And we're also on Facebook as T is for training. Excellent. I am on the Board of Trustees for the Onondaga County Public Library, and uh, this week we announced our new library director. Oh, that's so exciting. We've, we've had a search going on for a number of months, and uh, Christian, Z- Christian Zabreski. Oh, really? Yeah. From oh, that's Yonkers. great. Yeah. Excellent. So that just became final, like, on Tuesday. That's excellent. So he's going he's gonna to make the... Uh, the big leap. The big leap and move up, move up state, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. So that's new. Uh, conference-wise, it's been a good conference. I think uh, I always want to say what the best session was, but then it turns out to be like the session I just came from because that's what's in my mind. But um, this morning, the earlier session, was on Civil Service 101, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed that session because I have students who, are, who ask questions about civil service who should have been in that session and they weren't there, but hey. Uh, but really interesting to hear people who know civil service better than me talk about civil service and um, and lay out some information for all of us about how to deal with civil service. And But also in answering questions, sometimes to go, it depends, and kind of do that like, eh. Mm. Um, so that was interesting. Yesterday, the keynote was really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. on democracy yeah. and um, I haven't read her book I've listened so that's Astra Taylor who spoke yesterday as a keynote and she has a book uh, about democracy the title is something like democracy we never had it but we're going to miss it when it's gone and she's uh, this year did a podcast interview I don't remember with whom talking about the book uh, which is a very good podcast. So if you're not into reading books, you can find her podcast episode on uh, the Apple podcast platform and other places. Just search her name and search democracy. It should come up. She's done a documentary about democracy. And I know that uh, Future Tense, RN Future Tense out of Australia, has also done, in the last few years, an episode on democracy. She's not in that episode, but there's some... Um, some similarities between what's in the episode and what she talks about. But that whole idea that we don't understand democracy mm-hmm. is just fascinating. It's true. So one of the criticisms of her book, uh, reading about it online, is that she never um, defines democracy in her book. And I think that's because it's this complex idea that doesn't have one definition. And then when you talk about democracy with regard to how it applies to libraries, it applies on so many different levels and you know it, it becomes sometimes it becomes a popularity contest. But you have democracy with regard to voting for budgets in the public sector, um, democracy with regard to appointing people to directorships and and, and things of that nature as you just um, yeah. experienced with yeah. uh, with Christian Tabreski. Um, so there's, there's a component of that to libraries, absolutely. I think this conference actually 
um, was really good because in just walking through the lobby and walking through the, the halls, it's interesting to hear how the conversations continue from the programs. I always find that more, fasc more fascinating than actually attending the programs themselves because as people continue to talk, you see the ideas start to bubble up. And then business cards get exchanged, and now that you have a networking component to that, based upon that one particular um, presentation. Yeah. And I've, I, from a sociological standpoint, I was I like to follow that and watch that to see people, maybe somebody from Onondaga talking to somebody from Eastern Suffolk County, yep. where maybe they didn't speak before, they didn't even know they existed before, and now they both chimed in on questions, and then they got together afterwards and maybe spoke to the um, the presenter, and now it continues the conversation. I, uh, one of the things I like about this conference, going across the state or gathering people from across the state, is that kind of um, getting to know each other mm -hmm. and then being able to point, like, you do, oh, you don't know Chris? Like, see that guy over there? Like, that, that's, that's, you know, you need to know that person. Or um, our new uh, director, he'll start in January, Christian, was talking to someone, they're like, I, I don't think I know who that is. I was like, see that person refereeing the sword fight in the corner? <laughs> that would be him. That's him. Yeah. 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 And so, but it's fun. Like, there's all these fun things that happen, and gain, and you get to know people through the fun things. Exactly. Exactly. You don't necessarily, and the facades come down at the yeah. conference, too. You know, it's, you know, yes, this person's the director, and this person is this, but at the end of the day, when you're in a, a conference like this, it becomes a collaborative experience, yeah. no matter if you're a clerk, a page, a librarian, a director, an administrator. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. And my mind has just jumped uh, to a conference I was at several years ago, the um, IFLA, International Federation of Library Associations and blah, blah, blah. But IFLA, they have the World Library Information Congress, WLIC. And it travels around the world. And several years ago, it came to Columbus, Ohio. And what was fascinating is we all go to conferences and we dress kind of in business, business casual, casual, whatever that thing mm -hmm. is. But there were librarians from Africa who had on custom-made dresses or tops and skirts and jackets and ties that were made with their association logo in them. Absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And representing like their association in what they wore. And I think there's so much that we could learn being here in the United States that we could learn from international librarians. I mean, I've talked talk to people on this podcast from all over the world, and, and the one thing that, that is really unique is how we're all doing the same thing. And we all experience the same trials and tribulations, the same issues, and I think we have a lot to learn from the rest of the world. It's just a matter of us being, whether we're just New York-centric or U.S.-centric, um, or North America centric, right? You know, there's a lot that comes from Europe. Yes, not everybody speaks English. Well, most people speak English in Europe now, but there, you know, those nations don't speak English as their their native language. Right. But that doesn't mean they're not doing the same thing we are. So, there's a lot to be learned from France and the UK and the Netherlands and Finland and Scotland and, and all these different places. And that's something that we've learned with this podcast that you know you can talk to people from those places and we're, we're telling the same stories we're doing the same job 
and it, it's quite heartening actually to know that there's this solidarity um, and kinship uh, regardless of what boundaries you live within because mm. our profession is, is the same no matter where you go. Mm. While I'm thinking of it, I want to give you kudos for a uh, episode, actually it was a two episode because you guys ran so long where you spoke with a group of African-American librarians. Oh, yes. That was excellent. And it was very eye-opening for me yeah. being a, a not person of color. And it, it actually gave me hope, made me feel good about, about that, you know, this doesn't have to matter. I'm pointing at my skin. It doesn't have to matter. Unfortunately, it does, does matter, but it shouldn't. And in library land, it shouldn't. And in a lot of respects, I think that what the message that got across was, we're doing the same thing, and we're all colleagues, but there are still major hurdles yep. and major problems that are out there with regard to people of color um, in the profession. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we can fix them or, or what we can do to change it, but I can only hope that it's getting better. So that, those two episodes spurred a conversation at this conference um, between the LIS programs across the state and a few others to talk about how we support students of color. Yes. So that um, closed-door session, uh, I just want to tell you, came out of that podcast. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I never, I Thank didn't, you. I didn't tell them that yesterday but because, uh, you know, it's been a while since I listened to that podcast, but, um, but it did come out of that podcast. Wow, thank you so much. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow, and it was something that I really wanted to do because when we first interviewed Santisha uh, Samuel, Kendrick Sandrell, um, at the Lurik conference uh, a couple mm. of years ago, we had 20 minutes with her, and, and Bob and I looked at each other and said, there's, a, there's something there, there's a story there that we need to talk about because she talked about being a, a person of color and going to a conference and feeling alone in a room full of people and how when she sees another person of color, whether they know each other or not, they, you gravitate to each other because there's that, there's that kinship that, you know, oh, we're here and nobody's <laughs> talking to us. We don't know why nobody's talking to us. And it's just, it just doesn't, it, it, it makes, it, I understand it, but I, I don't understand why in our profession, one of the most progressive professions in the world, that that happens, yeah. you know? And it, it was just so interesting to have that conversation and when we we said to ourselves because we did a second episode with her at her library and we approached her and said would you be interested in doing something like this because there's something here yeah there's something here that is like unspoken or only spoken about you know in in private um it's not something that's out there and i felt that it was a story that had to be told and Santisha helped me gather um, helped me to gather a group of African-American librarians who were primarily almost all from Nassau County. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing, frank conversation. And I was grateful that they were able to open their hearts up and, and speak from the heart because I know that wasn't easy for them yeah. and that they agreed for it to be published because those are the kinds of things that, you know, I don't want to say it's dirty laundry, but it's just something that it feels like people of color don't feel comfortable talking about for whatever reason. Maybe they feel like it's going to get worse if they talk about it or I don't know because I don't have that experience. Yeah, or not believed or kind of like, well, you know, just get over it. You dismissed. Yeah, yeah. just get over it. Yeah. yeah. 
So I, last fall, I was able to go to the Joint Conference of Librarians of Color it was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there's about a thousand or so um, participants, mostly people of color, so African American, American Indian, um, Hispanic, Latinx, uh, Asian, Asian American. Who did I miss? I feel like I've missed some group. And uh, my guess is probably 90% people of color, 10% white. And what was sad to hear after the conference, um, as I'm checking Twitter on, you know, coming mm-hmm. home, checking Twitter, was to hear that, that there were still microaggressions. Yeah. That, you know, you think you're among your own people or among, you know, other people of color and that that will be the dominant um, culture and it will be a safe space because you are the dominant culture and to find out that the now not dominant culture is still not playing nice and so we, we as a profession we still have a lot of work to do you yes. already said that but we, yeah. we do have a lot of work to I do. think it's it this profession has progressed further than other professions to a certain degree yes but there's still a lot of work to be done a lot of work to be done and um Again, for me being being white, I can listen and understand and, and empathize and sympathize, but until I walk a day in the shoes, it's there's only so much that I can understand. And it's hard put, for you to walk a day in the shoes. It is. You know, we'd have to put you down in like, you know, I don't know, some you know, extremely large African American neighborhood or send you like to some other country or right. just, you know. And, and in doing that episode, I had a little bit of that feeling. They put me at ease right away because it was hugs and it was, this is going to be great. I, I'm yeah. so happy you're doing this. So it made me feel a lot more comfortable. Yeah. So the, the hard part is being, we try to um, be politically correct when we talk about different subjects. And the best, but the best conversations are when you get beyond the political correctness and you are comfortable talking about whatever that thing is. Right. Exactly. And it, and it takes, sometimes it takes a while to get to know people and uh, for everyone to let their guard down and recognize it as a safe space mm-hmm. where you can say, so what about, you know, whatever that thing is. Right. Exactly. So the friends that I have that are African American, I don't see them as African American right. because they're just my friends. There's almost like that, that, that kind of hump you have to get over on both, you right. know what I mean, to get past that. To, and it, it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. And I don't know how to fix that. If I did, then I'd probably, I don't know. You'd be smart. You are smart. Well, not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you and I, we can sit and talk about just about anything. Yeah. Because we respect each other. Um, we're colleagues. And, hell, it's just fun to talk. You know? And, and there, for me, there is not that. But for other people in the profession, there is that, whether it's inherited, whether it's learned, you know, it's not that it's good that it's learned, but it's learned through behavior from parents or relatives or whatever, um, or from experiences or wherever it comes from. And I don't know how to make that better. There's a whole move, um, I'm not sure it's a big trend, but there's a trend around cultural competence Mm -hmm. and people learning how to be culturally competent. we have a faculty member at SU, uh, Beth Potan, 
who is developing a class on cultural competence, and I know there's other classes out there, but that's what we need as librarians, is wherever you are and you look at your patrons, even if you think they all look alike, they're, they are all from different cultures, or maybe microcultures. Absolutely. And, and so how sure. do you be culturally competent in, how, how can you be competent in interacting with that person and their cultural background? And do it on the fly, and do it well, and then recognize when you're not doing it well. Mm-hmm. So when I was working part-time for 13 and a half years, I worked in a, in a community that was primarily either African-American, Latino. Mm. And I've, I, I tried to um, develop this skill where I could listen to the person. If they had an accent, I tried to discern where they were from to figure out whether or not they were going to be a Spanish speaker, a French Creole speaker, and because I speak a little bit of French, if I recognize like their name, yeah, I, I would say something to them in French. And guess what? The eyes light up. There's a big <laughs> smile. And now I've broken that that invisible barrier. And now, you talk about patron customer service, that kind of thing. They want to come back and talk to me again because they feel comfortable. Yeah. So there's like that that curtain has been pulled away, and now they know. Oh, I can talk to this guy. Yeah. This guy gets it, you know. And and, and then then it turns into an, a reference interview in French, which goes south really fast because my French is not that good. But even the fact that you are fluent in French, the fact that you tried, the mm-hmm. fact that you were able to open that door and go, okay, I, I, I know something and I can speak a little bit of French. Um, people like that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and it's even fun if you get somebody who's of um, Hispanic origin and they're speaking Spanish. I'll look at them and say something in French and they'll look at me first weird and then they'll go oh and then they get it because there's so many similarities yeah. between the two and then that starts a conversation outside of whatever we're doing and when you break down that barrier and you, you humanize the reference interview and you humanize a, a, a reference interaction that could ordinarily be considered awkward mm-hmm. for whatever that, that reason is from either side when you humanize that changes the Everything. entire playing field. When I worked at, so I worked at Corning uh, Incorporated, Corning Glassworks for 10 years, and there was someone I knew who uh, for a while worked in customer service. He was um, Ukrainian. Uh, I think, I don't remember if he was born in the United States or born in Ukraine, but he spoke Ukrainian and also spoke Russian. And so in customer service, servicing uh, Warning customers overseas, there was one customer who everyone had had a problem with. And so he gets on the phone and he's talking with this person uh, who's overseas. And after a while, he says, um, It sounds like, uh, 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 do you want to switch to, to, to Russian? Because the person was like dropping in Russian words. Do you want to switch to Russian? And I said, Yes, switch to Russian. So now they're communicating in Russian. And then he realized that the person on the other end of the phone, um, knows Ukrainian. He's like, do you want to switch to Ukrainian? Mm. And what was fascinating of this whole thing is that he, uh, something that had not gone well for a long period of time, he fixed because he spoke the language and he was able to show cultural competence. But, and that's the concept. You know, that's the, it's that it, it's understanding and recognizing and understanding the nuance yeah. of, okay, People from Ukraine were taught to speak Russian, but there's still the Ukrainian language. You know, understanding that yes. that distinction 
yeah. and understanding not just, oh, this person was speaking another, but the culture. Yeah. And even if it's rudimentary, maybe you read about it somewhere or something. Because um, I don't know anything about, I don't know a lot about French Creole. I don't know a lot about Haitian or, or people from Martinique or whatever. But the one thing that's common is they also learn proper French. So even if I'm messing up the conjugation, whether you know I'm talking in the wrong tense, it's saying, you know what, we have something in common. Yeah. And, and I love to do that with difficult patrons. Now, the, the double-edged sword to that is that the difficult patrons look for me all the time. But if you take that negative, that, that, that angry, mean, demanding patron um, is and you distract them. It's kind of like my father used to say, you know, well, your thumb hurts, hit yourself with the foot with a hammer, you won't feel your thumb anymore. <laughs> you know, it's that, that yeah. diversionary tactic almost. That's when you, you humanize. And now the person who has the complaint sees you as an ally in a way, even though you know they know they're not going to get right. any further with you. And you, you do that distraction. And then... Whether you know they're doing it because they think they're getting over on you or whatever that the, the circumstances, you've softened that hard edge, and they respect you more because you've shown that you want to build a relationship. Yeah, and and you're just trying to do what librarians do is help, mm. where other librarians, you know, they've reached their point and then they're done, then they turn off completely, and now it's get security, and it doesn't have to turn into that. It can turn into a learning experience and can turn into turning people around, and I always find that that's now as as I'm a, a a manager, um, as yeah, I know. Haha, <laughs> you know, as you, now you're the second person that the person yeah. they're talking to, and not that necessarily the first primary person. Usually, it softens when it hits the second level. Um, but when you turn it around without turning on the person who was initially engaged um, by using these these tactics, is you know, it's, it's a strategy. Um, you turn you turn a negative into a positive, and you keep them coming back in the building. Yeah. So, but again, going back to, to being a person of color, you know, breaking down that barrier because there's so much made in the media and in social media and all that, of, we're different because of X, Y, and Z. When you take that stuff and you crumple it up, throw it in the garbage can, what do we have in common? It's more about what we have in common, which is there's more of that than there is because your pigment in your skin is different than mine. I mean, and honestly, it's really just ridiculous. Well, it also might be um, how you're, where you live and how you're raised. So I'm African-American. Uh, I'm from South Central Pennsylvania. Um, I went to uh, private school, 7th and 12th grade, uh, which was primarily white, half Jewish. I went to a four-year college that was um, a lot of downstaters, so in New York State, but it was you know, heavily populated by people from downstate. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about my my culture, the culture I carry with me, sure. there's those things in it. Mm -hmm. You know, what's it like to go to a, a, a school, a small private school that's half Jewish? Yeah, uh, being a person of color. Be, yeah, and well, not even being a person of color, like it, it was half Jewish. How does that change how you think about holidays or how you think about food or how you think about, you know, something else. Sure. Um, being from South Central Pennsylvania, which is, you know, Amish, Mennonite, Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, how does that influence? And so you might look at me and go, well, she's African American, so she must, she must think like X. Like, well, no, I lived in this area and this is how I think. It's, it's you know, you're not right. going to guess the right thing. Right, exactly. And you can't 
broad brush everything. Yeah. You know, you can't say, oh, she's African American. She probably grew up in Philly, in yeah. Brooklyn, and you can't make that distinction. And even if they did grow up there, like Maurice grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. So what? So what? You know, and and the media loves to harp on the negatives of things. Um, and and play up all the negative stuff. Yeah. And when you when you talk about what you know white people quote unquote fear, that's two percent of the African American population, you know, with gangsters and all that stuff, right? Yeah. That 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 stuff that's that supposedly scares white people. Um, but and I have had the, that fortunate experience working in a predominantly African American Latino community to know that those people are awesome. You know, nobody would hug me like a person of color. So no one brought me food except for people <laughs> of color. You know, and they're just so grateful to get the help and have the yeah. conversation and just talk to people. And they, they, I never laughed so much as I did when I did the the, um, the librarians of color yeah. um, podcast, especially when the mics went off. We were laughing and having a good old time, and it's like there's nothing scary here. Yeah. Why are people scared? I mean, it's just it's just silly, and it's it's again. It's getting past those broad strokes and the preconceptions and the prejudice and all that stuff just to understand that every person is different. Yeah. And, and that's what it boils down to. And, and fortunately, until mainstream media does that, um, I mean, just in the same way, and this is kind of separate and apart, um, we talk about gun violence and how horrible gun violence is. But what the movies that are out there, what, what's in 80 to 90% of the movies? So it's, it's talking out of both sides of your mouth. Until we have a change, you know, a real change culturally in this country, yeah. you know, I don't know how much can get fixed. And the other thing um, about uh, gun violence and drugs uh, that someone pointed out to me is that what you see in the news are the people who didn't have the, the money or the power to shut down the story. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could be the most violent person in the world. Uh, but because of your privilege, because of your power, because of your money, you know, that story never hits the news. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And those people that are doing those things, that are getting arrested and getting prosecuted and put in jail, you can make the argument that they never had the opportunity to become educated and get a job while they're mm -hmm. in school to do the things they did or maybe... You know, their parents didn't have the same opportunity, so it, you know, so they're kind of at a disadvantage there too. So how do you, if you're raised in, you know, uh, South Central LA or Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, you know, how do you do what you do with, you know, maybe not the parent, your parents don't have a lot of money or your caregivers don't have a lot of money to put you through school, or maybe there isn't that um, emphasis on education, or. Um, so I, I kind of like hate that argument um, for, for a variety of different reasons. But um, one of the things that happen is who becomes your family. Mm -hmm. And so if your parents are working, you know, 80 hours a week and um, you're left alone, then your family becomes other people in the neighborhood. And if you're around gangsters and people who do drugs and people who carry guns, then that becomes your family. Right. Yeah. Right. And it becomes its own separate subculture, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to just point out um, that at ALA Midwinter, one of the speakers is going to be Wes Brown. He is from Baltimore, 
and he did a book entitled The Other West Brown. Uh, so he's from Baltimore. He's a famous author. Turns out in Baltimore, basically the same as, age as him is someone else named West Brown who's in jail. Mm-hmm. And the book is about, you know, this other person. Like they had, they're in the same town. They have the same name. And that, like how did their lives go differently? Right. Isn't it? And that's always fascinating. Um, and it's kind of a stupid analogy, but in the original Jurassic Park, um, they talked about chaos theory. Yeah. And with the droplet of water, it hits oh, yeah. the same spot, but it goes in a different direction. Why is that? Because of all these other complexities yeah. that are circulating around yeah. that, that particular event where everything happened exactly the same way. Yeah. And there's DNA, and there's attitudes, yeah. and there's feelings, and there's, there's all this other stuff. Yeah. You know, nothing is ever in a vacuum. Yeah. And sociologically, it's always an interesting study. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.